Hey, one of the questions that, you know, historians wrestle with and secular Christian historians have to wrestle with, and it's a, a question that's really important in terms of religion, Christianity, is why did Christianity survive? That may not be a question to you because it's obviously here today. But when you think of all the world religions, there were many messiahs that showed up during the time of Jesus. The New Testament actually points to others that came and claimed to be like Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that's come to rescue the nation of Israel. And so why did Christianity survive? And so secular historians, non-Christian historians look at this question. Christian historians look at this, and one of the answers they give is the foundation for why Christianity flourished during a period of time where it wasn't popular to be a Christian. Now realize, in the first century, when people came to faith in Christianity, there were many gods. The Romans had many, a plethora of gods, and every town and every village had their own god. And their god was the center of the economy of that village. So when Christianity came in and started influencing not just Jews but Gentiles, not just slaves but free, across the board, everyone started coming to faith. It started changing the economy and the structure of the economy of these communities, which means they were not very inviting to Christians. Christians were seen as narrow, they were seen as exclusive, and therefore they were seen as dangerous. And so if that was the tenor, if that was the feeling and the environment in which Christians, people came to faith in Christ, why would you come to faith in Christ? There's no social benefit, some ways like today. There's no personal benefit in the relationships you have. Rather, it's going to make your relationships at home, your marriages, all that stuff, it's going to be much, much worse. Why would you come to faith? And one of the things historians say is because of the word joy. That ordinary people shared transparently about their own lives what Jesus Christ had done, and there was a contagious joy in the lives of very ordinary people that the rest of the community had not experienced or seen. That there was, an, there was a joy. There was a joy in their faith, a joy in their relationship to their God, because, see, in the Roman communities, people didn't have joy when it came to their gods. They had fear. If you didn't take care of the gods, the gods don't take care of you. Therefore, your business is going to suffer. It's not a relationship of joy. But Christians came in, and they were filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, as Peter says, because they were receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. We're walking through a series as we're looking at some of the fruit of the Spirit. And we're discovering how the fruit of the Spirit flows out of a heart that really has been transformed by faith in Jesus. We're looking at the kind of life, the kind of heart, kind of relationship with God that flows out in the fruit of the Spirit. Because, see, it's possible to have a morally restrained life. Some of you are very disciplined. You've been successful based on discipline and self-control. And it's possible in the Christian life on the outside to appear very fruitful, but not out of a heart that loves God necessarily, or a heart that's being transformed by the grace of God, but simply by sheer willpower as you focus on the rules of God. The more and more you focus on the rules, you restrain your life, but there isn't a joy, a joy in God, a joy in the love of God that overflows, that's contagious to others. I think if many were honest when they look at the church, the one word they would not apply is joy. Often they see Christians as angry, Christians as judgmental. But see, in the first century, they saw the primary quality was Christians had this 
this overwhelming joy. So we want to begin to uncover what that joy is. How does it come? Because there is a uniqueness to Christianity and uniqueness to the joy that Christianity brings us. So we're going to jump into John chapter 16. If you want to grab a Bible, we have some for you. This is our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, please take that with you. Trust me, we got enough over here. We'll find another one. We'll place it. Take that with you. It's a gift from us to you. We're going to be in John chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 24. And in this passage, it's interesting. I should have done this on Mother's Day. Because Jesus is going to compare himself, you ready for this, to a woman giving birth. Doesn't that seem a little strange? Here's a man, Jesus, comparing himself to a woman giving birth and talking about the process of giving birth and the joy that brings a woman, even though she goes through incredible sorrow and pain, the joy isn't diminished because of the sorrow. Actually, here's the reality, it's increased because of the pain that she's gone through. Now, to me as a man, that seems crazy. It doesn't, doesn't fit. I don't know why women would give birth or have kids. I wouldn't do it. It just wouldn't happen. Because I know I was terrified. I'll just be honest. I was absolutely terrified. I think the nurses were more concerned about me, really. That's how bad I know. I shouldn't say that. But anyway, John 16. Let's jump in. John 16, and we're going to pick it up in verses 16 through 24. Let's, let's dive in. Verse 16. In a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And so some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And so Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, this is, this is what you're asking yourselves. And what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. See, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take away that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I remember the words that John said. I write this to you so that our joy might be complete. Father, what is at stake what is at stake this morning is the fullness of joy. That in your presence, you tell us, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we want to confess, I think, many of us in your presence this morning that often we just don't believe it. Because we don't dive deep enough. 
We don't fight for the joy that comes from you, Father. Rather, the world offers this, this joy at the surface of life that when received feels like happiness, but it drifts away with, with any shade of darkness. But in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So, Father, this morning as we, we gather as the body of Christ, you're with us. Would the Holy Spirit take the living and active word of God? And, Father, would we become more alive more at rest and peace in your joy because of what you're teaching us. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the uniqueness of Christian joy? Because, see, joy is central to the Christian faith. Let me say that again. Joy is central to the Christian faith. You cannot read the Old and the New Testament without seeing Joy is the center of the Christian experience. Now, it may not always be the center of our immediate experience, and we're going to talk about why that is, but joy is central to the Christian faith. And what's unique about Christian joy is it's not diminished by suffering. Now, that seems strange to us. The joy that Christianity offers, it's not reduced, it's not diminished, it's not reshaped, by suffering, in fact, when you press into God in the midst of suffering, suffering actually serves to enhance our joy. Now, that's the opposite of our culture. So that seems strange to us. And if you feel like that's a strange statement, you're in good company because that's what our culture thinks. Our culture does not see a great value in suffering. Now, in our society, there was a day in our culture where suffering was seen as valuable in that it gave you character. Today, it's a nuisance. Today, there's a pill. Today, there's a video game. Today, listen, there is an app that if you just download that app, it's going to shine joy in your face, and your, your day's going to be lifted. Your heart's going to be light, and there's music. There's images. That's all you need. It's, it's $1.99. That's all it is. <laughs> we live in a culture that is so adverse to suffering that the concept of suffering and joy are miles apart. But in the Christian faith, James says, consider it joy when life is going well. Consider it joy when you get a new job. No, consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. In the face of trials, Jesus is saying there is a promise of joy. Now, we need to dig into that because I think that requires some explanation. We can't just take that on face value. So what does it mean? What is the centrality of joy? In the Christian life. Well, here's what's happening in this passage in, in verses 16 to 24. Jesus is about to leave his disciples, and that's why he's saying, You're going to enter into sorrow. You've had me with you. It's been a good run, guys. Three and a half years. I'm going to the cross. My hour has come. And in that time, once I, I'm crucified on the cross, there will be sorrow, and the world is going to rejoice. But joy is going to come. And as the song goes, joy comes in the morning. Joy is going to come when you see me again face to face. So watch this in verse 19. And so Jesus knew. He, he knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying in a little while you will not see me. In a little while again you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And the world will rejoice, but will you be sorrowful? But your sorrow will turn into joy. That between Jesus' death and resurrection, there will be deep sorrow. 
But when you see me face to face, that sorrow and suffering will turn to joy. And that joy will be all the greater for having suffered it, for having gone through it. Now, for us, we haven't seen Jesus face to face in the same ways the disciples did. So it's a little disconnect between us. So in what way and where is this joy located? Well, again, if you look down at the end of verse 19, and he says this twice in the passage, he says, here's where joy is located. At the end of verse 19, it says, a little while you will not see me, and again, a little while you will see me. Jesus is saying, and it's a radical statement, joy is located in me. Joy is not just simply a byproduct of knowing me. Joy is in me. In knowing me, in being known by me, and experiencing my presence. Now, this is consistent throughout the Bible. Psalm 16 says, in God's presence is fullness of joy. So in the presence of God, there's fullness. And then this blows my mind. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That sounds better than a $1.99 app. He's saying, but we don't believe that. I think we live in a culture that presses hard against that reality. And the reason I say we don't believe that, I think we intellectually accept that. We assent to it, but our heart, our mind, our will, our emotions don't cling to it. We don't run to it. Otherwise, we'd be cultivating, I think, a consistent life of really living in God's presence. And we all know how hard it is to cultivate a consistent life dwelling in the presence of God. But see, joy is located in God's presence. It's located in knowing him. Now, when we talk about what, what Jesus is describing here, he's describing the resurrection. And he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross. After three days, I'm going to rise again, and in my presence, there'll be joy. Now, there's something about the resurrection that we just talked about a couple weeks ago that we've got to get our mind around. And I think this is hard for us sometimes. Often as um, Christians... We see the resurrection as a doctrine, and it is a doctrine. It's something we believe. But if it's only a doctrine, it's, it's not going to bring you joy. If it's just a doctrinal statement, it's, it's not going to breathe life in the midst of sorrow. And see, we see the resurrection of Jesus as an historic event, and that's true. It's a historic event that our faith is grounded in. But if it, all it is is a doctrine and a historic event, it's not enough. Because see, what the New Testament says is the resurrection of Jesus is our experience of God in coming to faith in him and the faith that God wants to awaken in us every single day. Jesus said, just as, or Paul said, just as we have died in Christ, so we have been raised in Christ. See, to know Christ, to know God, is to be resurrected, to be resurrected to newness of life. So Paul says, I've been crucified. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? I no longer live. My sinful self, my old nature no longer lives. Instead, the, the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me ask you, what kind of life would you live if you're walking around every single day in the reality that your Savior loved you and he lived for you? He loved you and gave his life for you. If that was your mentality, if that was your worldview, if that's the storyline that you're living out of, it would be a storyline of joy. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says, hey, we don't see Jesus right now. And then he says, we don't see him, though we believe in him, and we are filled with an inexpressible 
and glorious joy. For we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' presence, there is an inexpressible, meaning it's overwhelming, and glorious joy. But it's in his presence. That joy is essential to the Christian life. It's, it's tied into the Christian life. And could I say it this way? Can I push against it? It's inevitable. Now, some of us don't want to go there because we've been too disappointed by life. And we're afraid to hope for joy. I think sometimes we are afraid to open our heart to the reality that joy could be possible. Maybe because of the experiences you've gone through or the pain that you're walking. I don't want to diminish that. I want you to understand that Christian joy is inevitable. It's just not always immediate. Joy is like a tree. I like to think of it this way. It's, it's like a tree. And trees don't always bloom. But they're always growing. There's all, they're always alive. There are times where that tree is preparing for that growth to come out, to be shown. And joy in the same way is something we have to cultivate. And the truth is, there is something right now that is a greater object of joy in your heart than God. I hope I didn't share something new there. <laughs> there is something right now that is a greater object, and it's okay, we're in church and we can say this, there's something that's a greater object to joy in your heart than God. Now, we assent to God at times, but he's not always the object of joy. There's something that wants to come in and replace God as that object of joy. That's what's called repentance. Acknowledging, God, this is something I'm pursuing for joy, and yet it's not going to give me the joy that you want to bring. You know, one of my favorite books, series, The Lord of the Rings, uh, one of the things I like to do is there's some old um, audio recordings of Tolkien, and he's talking about his understanding why he wrote The Lord of the Rings. And there was a woman that wrote him a letter, and she said that she was disappointed that when the ring, if you don't know the story, you need to pick it up. It's a good book. Uh, or the movie, right? You can pick that up. That's kind of a long watch there. But when the ring was destroyed, she was saying how disappointed she was that immediately everything was set free. She, see, she thought it was kind of frivolous that this one ring held so much power, and when the ring was destroyed, suddenly there was freedom in the land. And Tolkien was saying when you set your heart on some other object and you look to it as an object of joy and you transfer your heart from it to God, that's the kind of freedom that God brings. He was describing the freedom that comes to us when simply we transfer our affections from one thing to God, and God comes in, and it begins to set us free. And that's what Jesus is saying. Joy is located in me and being found in me, accepted by me, loved by me. Joy is central to the Christian life. And so let's press into that. Joy is central, but it's very unique. That we have been discipled in the way of joy in our culture. And the way of joy in Christianity is not the same idea as the pathway or the walkway of joy in our culture. So we need to discover what does joy look like, the uniqueness of joy in the Christian faith. And so in verse 20, Jesus describes it, and he says, Truly I say to you, you're going to weep, you're going to lament, the world's going to rejoice, you're going to feel cast out, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now here's the question. How do we get joy? And I would suggest to you, joy is found in whatever object you locate your heart in that you find beautiful. Joy responds to beauty. The two always travel together. When you find an object beautiful, it's going to bring you joy. 
Now, not because of what the object gives you, but because the object is beautiful in itself. You know, we say beauty is in the eye of the holder, but really, beauty is in the object. I find my sons beautiful. Their disobedience makes it difficult for me to experience joy in their beauty, but they're beautiful in and of themselves. And I, I would hope, even as I get older, even if they walk away from their father and think he's a fool, which that's probably going to happen, right? Yeah, it's probably going to it's going to come. Even if that happens, I would hope, I would hope in my calmer moments, I could still see in my son an object of beauty that God has gifted to me. And they're beautiful, and that gives me joy because that's who they are. They're beautiful in and of themselves. And whatever the heart finds beautiful is going to bring joy. So let's track that. If that's true, and our joy is in God, when suffering comes... Does God become less beautiful or more beautiful? Now, I think it depends on what you're looking at. But the idea is when we trust in him more, God draws near and his beauty becomes much more tangible, much more real. And that joy comes out of the beauty we find in God. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to go through sorrow, but that sorrow is going to turn into joy. That in the Christian life, it is possible, it is possible to have joy in the midst of sorrow. Now, we're going to, we need to prove that. And for those of you that had children, you already know this. You already know this. He's taking a very common illustration of a woman giving birth. That just as pregnancy leads to birth, faith should lead to joy. And when a woman is going through child rearing, giving birth, uh, you know, as I said, I was terrified. But out of that sorrow comes joy. So notice the way he describes that experience in verses 21 and 22. And he's locating this idea of joy In this experience, it says, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow. Now, why does she have sorrow? Because her hour has come. Now, realize the word hour in the gospel of John is is crucial. Jesus is often saying to his disciples, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour means the hour of the cross. It's the hour in which I'm giving up my life so you might have life. Now, is that true of childbirth? I'd say it's pretty true. Now, today we have medical technology that sees and advance the challenges that women will face as they're giving birth. But in the first century, there were no medical technologies. There were some midwives that may help you out a little bit. But when there were complications, those complications inevitably led to death. So when the woman was giving birth, she was giving her life for the joy of another life to come. And so let's look into that. A woman, when she's giving birth, her hour has come. The moment of death has come. When she has delivered the baby, and she's still here, she no longer remembers, we're going to key on that word, the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now. So what's the description? So here's my experience. As I said, when I watched my wife giving birth, and there was a military nurse present, and she said to me, she looked at me, I was an abject terror, Right? Because I know my wife, when she got the epidural, she kind of, everything calmed down. And actually, I fell asleep. It was like 4 in the morning, right? And I wake up, and everyone's, everyone's moving. Things, something's happening right now. And this woman walks in, and she was a military nurse. She had no sympathy for me. I, I was, felt terrible at that moment. And she said, grab this leg. And I'll tell you, I was absolutely terrified. My wife was in pain. There was a lot of, you know, just it was tough. 
But there's something that happened, and I'll tell you, I don't know as a father that I experienced the same experience my wife did. I was more amazed by her. When I saw this child, I thought, well, that's great. Clean him up. My wife, immediately, she wanted to hold it. And when she held that child, I know she was still in pain. And I, I saw what was happening. It, it, it was painful. The pain hadn't gone. It was there, but she didn't remember it. Now, what does it mean to remember? God says, I do not remember your sin. It doesn't mean he forgets. It means he doesn't apply it to you. It doesn't control the way he feels about you. When my wife gave birth, the pain didn't control what she felt in the sense of what was satisfying her soul in that moment. When she saw the child, my, my boys, there was this inexpressible and glorious joy. She saw life. She saw that child. And the pain wasn't dictating in that moment the content of her soul. Does that make sense? That is the image that Jesus uses to describe our life with God. As we go through sorrow, God wants to be that joy in our life that doesn't cause the pain to diminish. Nothing's changed. In fact, there's a lot of recovery to come. And yet he wants to be that satisfying joy as we go through sorrows and suffering. There is a uniqueness to the Christian life, but we have to press into that. We have to, on the one hand, ask, as I said before, what is stealing your joy? What are you allowing to be that object of beauty to which you're trying to get joy from? And how can we transfer that over to faith and what God has done for us? There is a uniqueness. Now, how do we grow in this, this reality of joy? We see what it is. We see how it happens. And, and throughout Scripture, you'll see these words like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, the two existing together. And so how do we grow Enjoy. Well, this is again where that image of this woman comes into play. That in many ways, Jesus is associating himself with this woman who's giving birth. And what does it teach us about who he is? Well, it teaches us a couple things. On the one hand, it teaches us why Jesus died. It also teaches us how he endured that suffering. It teaches us why, but it also teaches us how. And the first thing that we see is in this illustration, we see Jesus giving away his joy for us. In the, on the cross, you've got to think about this a little. It takes a little mind turning to get this in your, in your heart. Is Jesus exchanged and gave up his joy for us. Because it describes, it says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. She knows that there's a possibility of her vacating her life for the joy of a new life. Well, that's true of Jesus. Jesus gave up his life for us. So on the cross, the pain of the cross, contrary to our common view, was not the physical suffering. Now, let me pause there. For as much as the passion of the Christ will kind of blow your emotions in your mind, that's not the depth of suffering physically that Jesus experienced. There was a greater, because his joy wasn't in physical life. He wasn't afraid. You know, he wasn't afraid of death. Like Paul said, hey, to live is Christ, die is to gain Christ, let's go for it. Jesus was not afraid of the physical suffering. Because his life, his physical life was not his joy. Would you agree with that? His joy was in the Father. What did Jesus lose when he went to the cross? He said, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The Father was his joy. 
What was the object of beauty in Jesus' heart? I've come to glorify the Father. Father, the reason I do the things that you ask me to do is because I love you. And he lays down his life for us. The joy that Jesus had, the object of beauty was the Father. What did he lose on the cross? Jesus lost the Father. Which means, on the cross, Jesus exchanged his joy for our joy. He exchanged his life for our life. You know, Isaiah says, Isaiah, I think it's 5311, says, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. That Jesus will see something and be satisfied. Hebrews plays that out. Hebrews 12 says, We look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then it goes on to say, Who for the joy? Now, doesn't that seem strange? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, if I'm looking at a cross, I'm not seeing joy. I'm going to get me out of here. I'm sweating drops of blood. I'm, I'm passing out just like Jesus did. But he said when he came to the cross, he transferred his object of joy from the Father to something he didn't have. Who for the joy set before him, there was a joy that enabled him to endure the cross, scorning its shame so that he could sit down at the right hand of the Father. Let me ask you, what did he not have that the cross gave him? And, and I think, I want to suggest the one thing he didn't have was us, in a sense, our life, just like a mother giving birth. But here's the greater one. He didn't have, or he set his joy in us having joy in the Father. You see, before that time, we did not have joy in the Father. We were separated. The wages of sin were death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. On the cross, Jesus set the beauty of his heart in the glory of us sharing the joy of the Father. He exchanged on the cross his joy for our joy. Now, I want to suggest to the degree that you grasp that, that on the cross, Jesus gave up his object of beauty. On the cross, the very thing that sustained his life, he laid down and transferred that joy to us so that we might know the Father. And only to the degree that that begins to break you, that begins to move you, that begins to open your heart, will that begin to transfer your joy from the things in this world to the object of faith, which is joy in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? In Jesus, he set that aside so we might know the Father. And in knowing the Father, we would have a joy. Because here's the reality. None of us are going to experience what Jesus experienced. None of us are going to go through the kind of suffering that Jesus endured so that we wouldn't always trust that as we go through suffering and pain in life, as we go through suffering and pain in life, it should draw us closer to God and not further away. Because if he was willing to lay down his life while we were sinners, would he not also all the more freely give us all things? It's about cultivating him as an object of beauty. That's really the Christian life. And if you're here today, forgive the church. Sometimes the church is a sorry reflection of the beauty of Jesus. 